You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Today's guest is Seth Green. Rob, did you know who Seth Green was before I interviewed him? Yes, I knew. I knew who Seth Green was. Are you? Why was it, that laugh? You were kind of scoffing. Well, just I, my wife loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I knew him from that, and Family Guy, and he's right. been in a lot of. He's stuff. Chris Griffin from the Family Guys. Uh, he was on Buffy, right? He was. Robot we met Chicken. Uh, Robot Chicken, uh, which he created, right? He's been around the block, and uh, he's always—you know—we've always gotten along, and when we see each other, we give each other a hug. I think I might have smoked a little grass with him at some point. Always a smile on his face. He has a wonderful wife, Claire. But I never really—again, we talk about this, but I don't get to know these people. You see him out and about, but you don't really know them. And and so finally, I said, Seth, come on the show, and he came over, and he was really sweet. He's really bright. I really didn't know that he was. Obviously, I knew he was bright, but he's. Uh, He's really bright, and you're going to learn about uh, how he started acting at seven years old. I couldn't imagine. Uh, I was still crapping in my pants at 16. How he's met so many different types of actors in so many different stages of their careers and just his kind of take on it all. Starring in Can't Buy Me Love with Patrick Dempsey and how Patrick actually taught him what a method actor was. Can you believe that Patrick Dempsey, you know, from Can't Buy Me Love when he does that dance with his hands and all that? You remember that movie? Did you ever see it? Uh, no, I haven't seen that. It's movie. a great '80s movie. He rides a lawnmower. He's a nerd, and he gets the hot chick. And uh, anyway, this episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what ZipRecruiter is, Rob? I do know what ZipRecruiter is. Talk to me about it for a second. Well, ZipRecruiter is where you go if you need to hire someone. And you've never needed to hire someone because you've always worked for someone. That's not true. I've hired plenty of people in my previous jobs. Oh, I was wrong. I you guess, were wrong. I don't know you. Have you hired anyone before? Uh, you know, I have. I have an assistant who's amazing, Jessica. But, you know, I was thinking about this. When I directed my movie back in the day, I, I probably would have made it a lot easier to go to these guys at ZipRecruiter because what a pain in the ass it was to go through each person interviewing yeah, and over. You, you hate people. So oh, I can only imagine how awful that is. I don't hate people. I love people. I like meeting people, but it's exhausting. And if you have somebody that does the research, does the work to get you the most qualified people for the job, it seems like that you cut out a lot of stuff, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a no brainer to me. It's it's challenging. Hiring is challenging. And uh, thank God for ZipRecruiter. I'll tell you that. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. Yep. With their powerful matching technology, they scan thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. I could have saved so much time. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Yep. ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. That's all you need to know right there. And right now our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash I-O-U. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash I-O-U. You know what that stands for, Rob? Inside of you. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. I think I definitely I prefer headphones. headphones when I'm recording. Yeah. Do you like listening to yourself? I don't like listening to myself. It's actually, it just becomes a very technical thing 
where if I'm recording something, then I can hear all of the specificity of my voice. Yeah, there's something about it just like you could just, okay, hey, I'm not talking too loudly. I don't need to try too hard. I'm just kind of having a conversation with Seth Green. I think, uh, yeah, like when we when I do Robot Chicken, I'll wind up doing like dozens of characters in the same record session because some, some of the cues are only a sentence long. And so I like a headphone because it gives me the ability to really detail. Give me an example of you just spitballing like in Robot Chicken where you just do a whole bunch of different characters. Well, it's never like spitballing. I've got like an assigned you have a script. list of stuff that I'll target. But it's usually just a lot of people. Like there's a doctor in this scene who's like, I've got the lab results. Sir. You do most of the voices. Well, yeah, as a matter of course. Yeah. Do you get paid for each voice? Or no, is- no, no. We made a deal. Uh, this is actually one of the <laughs> only reasons that the show is producible. We made a deal early on where it's complicated, but some of my fees go against the, the SAG. What would be a SAG fee goes against my producer fees. And so it balances out of the budget in a, in a way. So it's not, uh, yeah, that's Rob. He's, he takes pictures sometimes hey, what's up, man? and then he sits at his booth and sometimes he says stuff. It's like in the, the porno, just in the background, you hear like shutter snaps and yeah. like flashes going off. That's Rob. He's the guy <laughs> filming porn. I hear there's good money in it. Is that true? I, I hear there can be good money. It's depends, not good money. Depends how good you are, how good looking your penis is. All of that your... feels really short term to me. Like even your sound guy on that set feels short term. None of those. None what of does that, that mean? Does... What do you mean short term? I mean, it doesn't feel like there's any job security in any of those positions. Like any of those <laughs> positions. Not even the editor. Like Really? Everyone's be... expendable? Doesn't it feel like yeah. with the volume of films produced, even though they're all under separate banners, they still fall under the same banner? There's only like that's true. A handful of outlets for like Are there sound guys? There probably do is. Do you hear anything when you watch the movie? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of porn. I really don't. I'm not trying to act like I'm not a pig. Yeah. I mean, I do watch occasionally if I need to masturbate. <laughs> that's the I mean, I just I'm not a big I ask any of my friends, they sometimes will talk about porn and this it, and that. I'm just never going to be Is there another guy. time that you would Well, I watch. try to use my imagination when I'm getting too old and I have ADD, so I jump around too much and end up asleep. When you're trying master- to, where where we got on way off on top. Well, topic. you went to porn, I just started thinking of, Well, cuz you've got this ambient roving photographer here. <laughs> it's wrong. Who's just like Right. You hear these soft clicks just a little off mic. Yeah. Click click. I told you to get a silencer on the fucking <laughs> camera, Rob. There's a box. Don't talk. You're not on microphone. Don't talk if you don't have a microphone. You know the fucking rules. Wait, so uh, you didn't grow up out here. When did you move out out here? Uh, By the way, we have... uh, Thank you for allowing me to be inside of you, Seth (laughs) Benjamin Green. Thank you for being here. I was trying to think when we met. I feel like we met really early. I was going to talk to you about that. I I think I, I probably had seen you around, but the thing that rings my bell is that I met you in without a paddle with Dak Shepard, our mutual friend. Is that possible? Or yeah, that totally makes sense. And we might have met. I feel like I was I was aware of you because weren't you on CW or was it still was WB? I on CW? Was I was still, the poster boy. No, 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 no. I'm saying network. But WB. Was it, where, where was and it? Then it became it was still CW. WB. Yeah. Did, so yeah. So that was why I was aware of you. I was like, oh, everything that came on WB. Well, after, you did Buffy. I did Buffy. So on I was, WB. Exactly. So and then there was that crazy moment where buffy went from wb to upm but i lose track of the timeline of that so just just in a, in a matter of course i'm sure that was where i was aware of you was uh starring on that show right because dax and i had met at groundlings and then i saw him at punked obviously right <laughs> and yeah. then uh we got to make that movie together where we fell desperately in love and i heard all about yeah. i got jealous 
I could imagine. I got jealous of your relationship because we have such a great relationship, and then you guys. No, no, no. I I fucking heard all about it, dude. Uh, Yeah, I got jealous listening to him wax poetic about his wonderful relationship with Rosenbaum. I remember when he first told me, he goes, dude, I'm getting this much money for without a paddle. Yeah. And I go, I've never made near that money, and I've done more movies than you. Granted, they were all bad. I think that was uh, that oh. was like a high point for ev- all of us. I think it was like the the most leading man Matt Lillard had ever gotten to play. It was. I don't know. Scream was. I mean, I know he wasn't the lead. He wasn't. Uh, That's what's what I'm his saying. Name? This is the guy who the story Screech, is about. Screech Ulrich. What's his name? <laughs> Skeet, Skeet Ulrich. Skeet Ulrich. No, no, no. But it's it's like. All of a sudden, Lillard's the guy that the movie's about who gets to kiss the girl at the end who has to right, overcome right. his that emotional guy, con- conflict to be the guy that he's always been, supposed to be. I got you. Yeah. And for me, it was the like the fourth movie in a row I did for Paramount. And it was like the second or third movie I was doing with this producer who'd given me the script before they started casting. It was like the most involved I'd ever gotten to be in something. And for Dax, it was like the first time he got to be a big lead in a movie yeah i i just felt like a cheerleader because i was so behind both of those guys yeah. through the whole process because i and i kept saying the three of us together i'm certain it's a movie like the three of us together we all work so hard we're all so committed we're good together our energy our our and, chemistry is and great i always together. feel like the the three you guys are this isn't everybody in Hollywood, but I feel I feel like you are one of the guys and Matthew and Dax that want to see other people succeed. Yeah, they are cheerleaders. They're, look, I think you go through a stage. I, I, I mean, some people could say, "No, I've never been there." I think everybody's been sort of a hater in a way. I'm a little jealous. I'm a little this. I should be doing this at some stage in your career yeah. until you start growing up. Yeah, and you I realize had a, I had an agent shit on me about that, and he wasn't wrong. It was actually really informative because there's a time where you're just not getting the auditions that you want the opportunities that you want and it was even like right when that movie was coming out i felt like it was testing so high right paramount was excited about it why didn't i have some other movie lined up and he just said look i know you think that just because you do this that you're gonna always get to do it and he said you're never gonna not have to fight for it he's like it's a it's a myth there's always somebody Everybody's always looking over their shoulder. If you're Will Smith, you're always looking over your shoulder for whoever's coming up next. I'd rather be Will Smith. Yeah, but even Will Smith hits bumps, man, and has to like rejigger it to get the audience on his side. That's true. Like, look at the last 10 years for Will Smith. He went from starring in Ali to... uh, I am legend. Well, well, you could, you know, it's it's all of it. It's yeah. it's all of it. It's the uh, the the movie he did with his son. Right, it's right, the, right. And he it, it's it's to the point where he's got a cameo in Anchorman to show people that he plays well with others, that he doesn't need to just be the lead. It's him doing stuff like Suicide Squad, where he gets to be meaningful, where people get to like him again instead of feeling like he's too big a star to star in movies. But I also think like. For me, it's about opportunity, like getting an opportunity to do something. I think like for Will Smith, he doesn't really ever have to worry. Like he's always going to work. He's Will Smith. He's done. He, listen, I think you're I think you're wrong. Though. Why? He has hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, but whether it's a movie like Collateral Beauty or um, the thing he, he just did this bright, it's like he works to be able to have those opportunities again. I think there's I think that well, and, and, I mean, and just I, to go back I, to your old point about the, the original point about being envious of people. I do like to dis- make a distinction between jealousy and envy. Like there's things I want for myself, but I don't necessarily wish that someone else didn't have them for right. me to have them. But 
I, I've definitely gone through points in my career where choices that I made, things that I passed on became a, a hit or worked for someone else. And then I've, I've just had to really look at it and say, the only thing I can control is myself. The only person that I really have jurisdiction over is me. Um, and so if, if I'm, if I'm always trying hard and I'm always working hard and I'm always paying attention to try and figure out how it can work better for me, not at the expense of others, then I will have my own career and I will have my own path and it's not going to be somebody else's path. And there's going to be people who look at my path and say, oh man, I'm envious of him for that. It never feels that way for you, you know? Yeah. So I just, I, that's the thing I try and police. Well, you always had, I mean, if you look at your career, I mean, you started doing this when you were seven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, well, it, there's two things. One, to be able to have a career at seven and then, how old are you? 40? 43. You said that with confidence. You're like, I'm, I'm excited. Well, because I remembered it this time when I told you earlier, I was like, what how old am I? How's that math work? <laughs> but you've been doing this for 35 so years. Isn't that funny? But I mean, you could have easily been like in and out. Yeah. You know, Brighton Beach memoirs, right? I've seen so many of it. That's the thing. That's the fun part for, for me, at least, is that uh, I've known so many people in the thick of it. So I've met kids who have stuck it out and become adults. I've known kids who washed out early. I've known kids who gave it up when they were in their 20s. And then I've seen everybody hit the scene i've seen all these like young uh disney kids turn into momentary sex symbols and then figure out if they're gonna ever work again you know and what is that what what is it that you think some of these people have that you see they've got longevity they've got something is it is, you think it's not even talent but it's more of a drive it's it's inside i think it's both i think you have to be talented or at least willing to always be learning how to be better uh, but I definitely think it's drive because you're the only one driving your career. You can hire as many people as you want, but eventually at every point, it's going to be you that pushes you and forward. You, you've always had drive. You've always wanted to be better. You've always wanted I don't, to do – I've never craved being rich or famous. I just love performing. You never thought when you were young, I want to be rich. I want to be famous. No, because we were poor. And it didn't matter. Do you know what I mean? My parents like did well with getting me Star Wars toys, even though we didn't have money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I knew we'd get the Star Wars. And I was always about like my parents were very bad at saving money or like we were never wanting for things, but we didn't live large. Like we were very modest, super middle class. Were they good parents? Yeah, they were both really good parents. They, they were both incredibly supportive of me, even though they tried to be realistic about the way the world works. It's highly improbable that a kid like me from my neighborhood, from those parents would. Where is the neighborhood? Oh, we're in, uh, it was Overbrook Park in Philadelphia. <laughs> tough neighborhood? Eh, I mean, tough for me as one of like two Jewish kids in a 10 mile radius. Really? They were tough to Jews in Philadelphia? I think kids are, everyone? I think kids are tough on anything that's different. I had red hair. I had a funny name and. I went to a school Seth? that was K through 12. Seth yeah, well, now it's name. common. But when I was yeah. growing up, there was literally nobody else with the name. That's true. I never knew any Seths. Yeah. I grew up in a, a black and Italian neighborhood and was like the – and then went to a school that was primarily those uh, demographics. Did you have a lot of friends in school? N no. <laughs> Why? I'm wildly unpopular. Jew? Redheaded? I had so much energy – 
and was, you know, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest, I was both obnoxious and rude, you know, and it wasn't things that I learned until I was older. That Do you think that was false bravado? That was sort of that, Hey, you know, I'm going to act tough and act smart ass and act funny, but deep down I'm dying. I think that was me. I was the shortest kid in my high school. I was, you know, I was insecure, but I always try to be funny in this and that. I realized I'm an idiot. Who would want to hang out with me? I definitely had a little bit of feeling like I needed to show off, but almost it was a, out, of, out of a sense of responsibility rather than like, I was like, oh, this teacher's dying here. I got I to gotta save gotta him. Get, let's get Fuse a little bit. <laughs> well, no, I was just actually, I, I, um, I read at a really high level and I had a um, organic vocabulary that was, you know, borderline obnoxious. And- organic vocabulary. <laughs> I've never really heard that in organic <laughs> vocabulary. Yeah. So you would spit out words that a young boy, that young guy should know. Yeah, or that should not. I got challenged all the time. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? What are you talking about? Did you do it on purpose? No, I read a lot. I just read a lot. And that's the way that things are written. And so when I spoke, <laughs> you almost jumped into Christopher Walken. When I spoke... I get accused of that a lot. I, I guess I have to really check my mannerisms. One of my good friends is like... Christopher Walken? Yeah. <laughs> it's not. And he always says, you know, Seth, I, Seth. I don't like what you do <laughs> when you talk. It's <laughs> great. You know what's funny is I used to do walking back when everybody did him. Yeah. And that was like, I remember, like, not a lot of people did... Walking and Jay, now everybody Jay more like hard popularized that entire yeah, thing. Yeah, and I was always upset. I was that was one of those days where I was jealous of someone. I was like, I've been doing that. And I just missed the boat. You gotta jump on it, man. Especially with social media. If you got an idea, you got to, you gotta throw it out there. I think that's true. Right. We we all sort of tend to think about the same kinds of things at the same time and someone will seize it. I've always found acting on opportunity when you have it is is the best. Because if you let something go, it can take too long. So Philadelphia, Jewish kid. Look, I think I look at you right now and even the years that I've known you, I could tell you had a good childhood. I could just tell when someone had a good childhood. Good in what context? Well, I just felt like, did your dad say he loved you? I did. That means a lot, dude. It I, means I, more than you can imagine. I actually, I've seen, I've seen that against so many other examples. I did. I had very, uh, my parents were affectionate to me. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were physically affectionate like showed me unconditional love in those circumstances and so even in cases where they were ill-equipped with the right lesson or even valuable information in the situation they made me feel special yeah 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 i my dad once hugged me at my bar mitzvah uh it was a posed shot i think he was just uh, it looked good yeah but it's okay. I definitely had a lot of that too, where my parents struggled with what their actual roles in their lives were and like needing certain photographs to look a particular way so that they could reflect on it, even if the mood in the room was completely in contrast to that. So right. everybody's fucking furious at each other and we all have to like take this picture. It's Christmas. Let's remember this picture for yeah. the holidays. Yeah. And I, I got, I remember being really strident when I was like 13. Just, you just want the fucking picture, dad. You don't even want the fucking memory, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a minute. It takes a minute. You, 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 I think everybody sort of realizes at some point that their parents are just adults. They're just people. They're not superhuman. They're not um, Wikipedia. They don't, at some point they were kids and whatever their parents were going through, that's the best they got. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out and it's not going to come out in great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here has been using it for a while. And I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp? When you don't have therapy? Oh, the weeks where I miss a session? Of course, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small. And at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash inside. Inside of you is brought to you by Rocket Money. I love Rocket Money. You know why? Because everyone should have Rocket Money because it just helps you save money. How many times do we have subscriptions that we don't even know we have anymore and we're paying so much money? It's just throwing away money, Ryan. I, I found one. You And you did it. You told I me. I got found- Rocket Money. <laughs> Okay, I found one. It. I'm embarrassed to say how long it's been going on, but thank you for finding it. <laughs> My God, it was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you want to watch some show and you go, oh, I have to subscribe to this uh, this streaming de- uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, you start streaming the show, you watch it, you leave, and you forget after this trial period it kicks in and it's they're charging terrible. you 10 bucks a month. It's, it is embarrassing. Ugh. You know, 75% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. Before I started using Rocket Money, I thought I had, you know, like, oh, I have like five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for like four extra uh, between, you know, streaming advices and fitness apps, delivery services. It's never ending. And thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. I don't like that. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash inside. That's rocketmoney.com slash inside. Rocketmoney.com slash inside. So one of the best lessons I learned was beyond that my parents were just people was that you don't have to take everything your parents give you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You can uh-huh. abandon any of it you want. 
I used to believe my parents were the smartest. They just knew everything. Whatever they said was right. Whatever belief they had. My dad was Superman. He never smoked. He didn't do drugs. Yeah. He didn't do anything. He was perfect. And it wasn't until in my mid-20s when I realized he smoked. He did a lot of drugs. He went to Woodstock. He lied about a lot of things. Did that he, help or hurt you? Uh, you know, I just wish... Was it like a big reveal? I, you know, look, I mean, like hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I just feel like... I wish you would have leveled with me. I didn't need the, the parent. I didn't need the dad who said, hey, Michael, if you're going to drink, I want you to drink in my house where you're safe. My dad was like, if I catch you drinking, you're going to a halfway house. That's the fucking <laughs> it. If I catch you with an earring, you're fucking out of the house. If I, He was hardcore, dude. Mm. And he knows it. My brother can attest to that. But Is your dad still alive? Yes. I just actually visited him, and it's weird because he's going through a whole new transitional stage in life. He just retired, went through his second wife. Well, I don't want to say went through. It sounds right. like it's bad, but they lasted 17 years. So that was like – it wasn't just a you know, quick thing. But D- Divorced a second time. Divorced a second time. But I feel like he's like – I wrote him a letter, and I just said, you know, I said some things. And I probably – I didn't sugarcoat it. I just said, this is how I feel. You got two great kids out in California. You know, you could be having a good time. You could do a lot of fun things. I get to do a lot of fun things in my life. You could either be a part of that or not, but I'm not wasting my time with this shit. Mm. And in the last six months, I'm telling you, you had to know my father before, but there are drastic changes to the point mm. where I, like my therapist says, don't, you know, you could be nice. You don't, don't question on it. Like, who the hell are you? Cause I want to say like, what, what ecstasy is that? Cause you, you're really, gosh, he's just a different person. Yeah. He really is a different person and it, everyone notices it instead of, holding against him where his limitations were in the past right trying to appreciate how much he's trying he's making a hundred percent doing that here i really appreciate it and i I, res- <laughs> I really i do i don't know i'm saying that's that's fucking tough man it's, it's wild my whole life i never knew that did he know his dad was he close yeah to his my dad? grandpa irv is here's what's amazing i think irv is the best man in the history of men I think my anybody in the family thinks my grandfather is the best person you'd ever meet, but he has a different experience. He, I think, went some, through some drugs like in his, when he was seventeen. Went to Woodstock, was a little combative, and he also like I think my father like he was a little resentful because my grandfather wasn't that accepting of his either wives. It was just a parent. He just didn't like them, and rightfully so. I, I didn't like them, but <laughs> no, I, I can't say that. But I. But as as a father, I think I understand my father's point of view is like, you have to suck it up and you have to be nice. It's my wife and you have to do your best. And my grandfather apologizes. He wrote my father a letter saying, you know, I should have tried harder. He he told me once, my grandfather, my dad doesn't know this. My grandfather said, Michael, I would try so hard with your mother. I would, she'd come visit with, with all, your whole family, you and your brothers and sisters and you come. And I'd said, this time I'm going to be good. And I'm going to listen and I'm going to smile and I'm going to be great. And then we got there and he said, within five minutes of her talking, I had to leave. And I took you guys to play football or whatever and get out of the house because I couldn't listen to it. And I, was she, I understand both what sides. Say? Like, what? She just was kind of a loud, you know, I mean, I love my mother, but she's yeah, kind of a loud mouth, know it all, just all about her, completely about her. And anybody who meets her knows that. Yeah. I think she has a heart, but I think she also... It's about me, 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 not you. I don't care about you. I don't want to listen to you. And I think that just yeah. rubs some people the wrong way. They're like, I don't like you. I once said, if I didn't, if you weren't my parents, I wouldn't fucking hang out with you. <laughs> what about you with your parents? Would you hang out with them? Did you like them? I think I get a lot of that thing where 
everybody else – both my parents were teachers. Mm. Um, everybody else that met my parents would tell me how awesome they were, how much they had influenced them, like what kindness and – you know, what they taught them. And there was definitely a little bit of me who was like, I wish I'd fucking see that. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, but I, but I look against so many of my friends um, or just people's experience with their parents. And I realized that my parents were really kind. And uh, even though my mom uh, is reserved, narcissism, bordering on sociopathy but she's got such a high level of empathy Ooh. that it can't be that she's not truly narcissistic egotistical you know what i mean she's it's more it's more from a depth of insecurity and like a general discomfort with just being in a silent moment um and then it's that it's that thing where somebody feels like they're not valuable enough so i've got to create some kind of crisis for people to solve so she that didn't feel wanna, valued so that they'll want to hang out with me no and, and, it, and it's it's that exact thing it's like you gotta look at what information your parents were getting whatever grievance you have with your folks and where their shortcomings are go back to what they got and then really dig into your your grandparents on both sides like what kind of people were they like what what kind of lessons did they get because you can see this shit passed down all the way to you. Yeah. And it's interesting to go to other companies. We were just in Germany and in Germany, everybody, they honor their heritage in a way that we don't in America. We really are like, I don't even give up. I don't even know what my granddad did for work. I don't give a fuck. It is fascinating being in Germany right now, a country. That I love is Germany. I was just there. No, no, no. I'm just saying I had never been there. So all of my understanding of it is about in context of the war and, and like, like growing up Jewish and just knowing that about Germans. But having met several Germans uh, in my life and especially this, this one guy that produced our movie, I've gotten a completely different understanding of the country um, and what it is and why so many people want to live there. It's beautiful, beautiful place. But it is very funny to watch a country that has that has already gone through a rise of totalitarianism and and like legit fascism to the point that they were murdering millions of people, yeah. um, and see them talk about the U.S. It's just like <laughs> yeah, because I I'm undeniably American. It's, it's crazy. Go to these it's crazy to, to and hear they, that. And they're you know we're all sipping our coffee and they're like yeah. You guys are in a funny place right now, <laughs> like, right? You're listening I to Merkel, so, and you're yeah. like, e -e -e, but, but it makes sense. But even her, I, I, I don't, I don't, I just don't follow that level of world affairs like that. But I remember hearing that she had welcomed in so many refugees, and there's just a, a murmuring backlash because it's been months, and people believe that all of the influx of refugees were wildly unchecked, that there was no policing of them, recording of their names and stuff, and so you're starting to even see there. It's it, it, like, what's wrong with us? We're just, as we human never beings, learned. I think we're bound by fear, villagism, you know, like it's the, so whoever's outside the walls are trying to get us. And I don't know why we're building walls. Right? They just go underground. Anybody weren't their salt knows Rob. how to build a good tunnel. <laughs> Rob had a good, good uh, upbringing. Good upbringing, like parents still together, still alive kind of thing? Yeah, parents still together. I didn't get along great with my mom, though, growing up. Really? Were you breastfed? Uh, yes, I was. Siblings? Yep. Two older sisters and a Two little brother. Two older sisters. No wonder you didn't get along with your mom. Yep. Yeah, He's very stable. You both seem very stable. I envy that. 
That's I envy time. sort of stability. I envy. I'm getting there. Like I, I go time. through the therapy. I do this thing. I acknowledge everything. I acknowledge parents. You, you said something a minute ago, or maybe a few minutes ago, about you got to acknowledge their parents and their family what they went through. But I also really believe that you've got to be responsible for your own actions, and you can't blame the past for you know how you are. And you could change. Mm-hmm. I've talked about this. You can do things differently. You can, I mean, look, I, I come from a family of manic depression. There's a lot of it and the drug use and alcoholism and all this. Yeah. You too. And so I, but, but I'm like, okay, okay. I come from this, but is this what I have to do? No, it's not. I'm going to say, no, I recognize the things I hate about myself. I recognize them. I don't like them. How do I fix them? And I think that's step one. I just think people just kind of are resolved to, hey, this is uh because I'm just following in my dad's footsteps. That's what it is. I guess that's just what I do. But we have little mannerisms. Like I have a, when I have a temper, which I don't let out, but when I do and I lose it, I'm like, oh my God, I'm my fucking father. Yeah. I can't let that happen again. You know, and not that he was always screaming, but. I'm not one to really advocate uh, drugs, <laughs> but I will say <laughs> that when I was a teenager, I took LSD and ate mushrooms and it gave me a level of clarity and perspective that I would not have gotten had I not had I, I would not have gotten that early. Like maybe you come to those same conclusions through therapy and like general study, but and it's fucked up because as if I considering being a parent, I was like, what would I do if I found out that my kid ate acid when they were like sixteen? You'd what be in a halfway I? house if you're my dad's kid. Well, but at the same time. If either of my parents had found that out, they probably would have been like, well, okay, what did you learn? Really? You know what I mean? That's such a big difference. Yeah. There's something to be said about, you know, knowing that the worst thing to do is like, if I do this, I get caught. What's the worst that can happen? I always thought I was going to, this, the worst thing could happen. I guess I didn't know, but I also lived on my own when I did it. So I didn't have to worry about my parents, but I had, I had, I'm also in a regular case, I think, because I had done so much study. I'd read so many books where characters ate drugs and described the experience. And then I got really fixated on the fact that the government did a ton of psychedelic experiments in the sixties in the from the forties to the sixties, they did a ton of experiments with psychedelic things like remote viewing and it's all documented both both the experiments themselves all the the subjects and all of their results and so i just did a ton of reading on it and then the first time that i did it i sat there with a notepad and a watch and i just like took i was like okay one hour in feeling slight uh discomfort in my skin uh you knew uh, what to expect. You were, elevated you were, awareness in this guy. Wow. You know what I mean? It's almost like a doctor. You're like a doctor. You're I like, did. I went is... through it like a scientist, a scientist as if I was conducting a, a controlled experiment, which do it kind of was. You, now, you do you smoke a lot of pot? Um, What's a lot? Do you smoke every day? <laughs> mm, I go through – I definitely go through periods of that. But I also go through lengthy periods of not doing anything. Like when we were shooting this movie out in Thailand, it's kind no, of no, – And nothing. No, because it's really – I mean I drank a little bit after hours – uh, to sort of sh- God, bring so you down much adrenaline, right? Doing, doing all the things is so much adrenaline, but it was critical for me in each one of those, uh, contexts to be razor sharp, like right. laser focused. The, the kind of clarity that only comes with that. Is there a withdrawal to marijuana? No, really isn't. There's maybe, there's maybe some kind of behavioral dependence, but I think that's, that's the person. Like if you, if you start, if you really create those synapse between a physical thing and a mood, that's that's your own connection. That's not a but the the substance itself doesn't really have that connection. If I wanted to, if you want, I wanted to sleep better. What kind of weed would I take? 
uh, probably some. I, I mean, honestly, the best thing for that is just pure CBD. Really? Yeah, without any THC. Like two droppers. Whatever your. There's. I mean, we live in the future where you can get things. I use that. Anyways. I actually. I, I take that. And it does help. Yeah, CBD is, is like well, an amazing, dot com. amazing, dot com. legit uh, medicine. It's. Making, yeah, it, it's unbelievable. It's crazy how the the whole concept was demonized, but you see it. It's it's about industry. Like there was a point where paper from mills and um, wood mills as a textile, the pulp from from like trees was a, and also cotton. It was like a bigger industry. Right. The the hemp as a as a textile was like they're like we got to fucking demonize this. What made you get in acting? I mean, was there anybody else in your family doing this? Nobody. Nope. So what made you say, yeah, yeah, I'd be good at this. And how old were you? Seven. So you, did you do a play? I did. When I was, uh, you know, I just always was in I watched a lot of television. What did you watch? Everything. Everything. Sesame Street, Electric Company, cartoons, all the cartoons. Um, and I saw something, I think it was on Electric Company, where they talked about the woman cleaning the kitchen in the commercial and how she was an actress. And she didn't really love cleaning her kitchen. And they like showed you what a set looked like, a proscenium set, right. all the lights and all the people. And I don't know, there was something about that that stuck with me. It's like, oh, that's a job, you know? And I loved radio, doing voices. I think I understood those concepts really early on. And then uh, my 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 mom was uh, uh, the the art director at um, a summer camp, and I got to like hang out there. And I didn't go to camp there because I was so young. But I watched the kids, and now I, I think about it. Those kids were probably like 13 and 15, but they felt like adults to me. Um, I watched them put on a play one summer, and I was like, I want to do that. What play? Uh, I think the first play they put on was – oh, it was. It was uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I was like, let me play Woodstock. Woodstock doesn't have any lines. Let me just be on the stage. Let me just be a part of this thing. And they were like, no. And so the next session, which was part of the same summer, they're putting on Hello, Dolly. And I was just relentless showing up sitting there just in their face let me do this and they're like fine fine we'll give you one line at the very end of the the play at the very end of the play before the last review where everybody like does the high kick and sings hello dolly i come running up the stairs and i'm i'm so little when i was when i was little i was so little and uh i say she's here she's here dolly is here to straight to the audience and then i get into the line. she walks and makes her entrance and we all do the review and at the end of the thing, when we're all taking our bow, I don't know how to explain it. I was just, I felt like the most, the most certainty I've ever felt. The most certainty about. That's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. It was different. I, I was so scared. I had to audition for a play my senior year. I was taking drama, but I was still scared to ever be in a play. Yeah. And the teacher says, you can't take advanced drama, which was pretty much drama, but you're a senior. So it's the same class, but you can't take it unless you audition for a play to show me that you're somewhat serious. Yeah. And I go, okay. And I auditioned and I got the part of Vince Fontaine. I've, I've told the story uh, in Greece, you know, main brain Vince Fontaine spinning the stacks of wax here at the house of wax, the whole thing. And I still haven't memorized because I was so nervous. And I remember walking out on stage and like I came out and gave my, and I remember the feeling of I'm accepted. Look at this, man. They love me. They fucking love me. I'm like, <laughs> Sam, that just turned into Sam Kinison. <laughs> and I just felt that was it. That's interesting, though, that it came from that place of like. Of what? The they love me. They really love me. Yeah. It was more like, you know what it was? It was like I felt like I was accepted for the first time. 
I don't think that's ever where I was coming from. And that's why you're much healthier than I am, <laughs> most likely. But I, but I never really felt accepted, too. I had to, my, my wife and I talk about this all the time. There was at least twice in my school the sum total of my class, like at least 30 people were circled around me pointing and laughing or hurling insults or just like the worst, right? At least twice. And then uh, at my summer camp too, I had the entire camp at one point focus fixed on me because I tried to make a joke that failed and it turned into someone else's opportunity to undo me. I think I was 11. And it was, you know, there was never in that moment that feeling of like, I'll fucking show them. It was always like, Oh God, I lost it. I lost the audience in that moment. I could have had them and I lost them. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the thing. Like when I'm on stage, I don't even see the audience as individuals. I just, it's the audience and I'm, I'm the performer and that's what I do. You know what I mean? I'm in this moment to do the thing and convince them all that it's easy so that when they leave, they've got something to think about. Have you ever felt great failure? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a million jobs I didn't get. Like, I've, like, fucked up opportunities hard in front of people that mean a lot to me and had them look at me like, Jesus, you, dropped you are the ball. literally blowing They it. gave you a chance and you dropped it. Yeah. Yeah. We've all had those. Yeah. And it only makes you more resolute to be better in the moment. That's the drive is, like, not letting my, ugh, I'm tired or, ugh, why doesn't anybody understand my personal fucking drama yeah Yeah. why doesn't anyone understand me the quest for understanding isn't that all we yeah (laughs) the thing we're all on so i just try and focus on the work which is really what i love the most failure is so weird because if you if you're just like i just don't want to let people down that's not the way to think it's not just don't let yourself down do what you are supposed to do do what you're good at and sometimes you forget sometimes you're just going i gotta be great i gotta be great all these people want me to be great i gotta be great And you put so much pressure on yourself. But there's a way to be great and you probably know it. And if you don't follow those steps, you're going to blow it. And a lot of those steps are simple steps. It's called work. Basic shit. Before I left to do this movie. Learn your fucking lines, dude. Yeah. Well, you sort of, that Matt said said that to every single one of the actors. They were like, what do do I need to do? I'm going to go, be off book. Be off book. Be off book. Be 100% off book. Yep. So that we're not fucking around when we get out there. And we needed it. We needed it because there were weather problems. There was like situational things. You want to get as many takes of something as you can. And if if you have to go back because somebody's fouling their lines, it will ruin And what is this movie? Oh, the thing we shot in Thailand. Did I tell you? I told you about it. Yeah, yeah. What's it called? It's called Changeland. And who's in that? It's me and Brecken Meyer and uh, Brenda Song and Claire Grant. Claire uh, Grant. I know that name. Yeah. That's your wife. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a, a kid named Kedar Williams Sterling. He's a fantastic kid that we met, uh, a British kid. And then uh, a girl named Rose Williams, who was on uh, Rain on CW Play. Nice. Princess Claude. And then Macaulay Culkin. Now, you've been friends with Macaulay a long time? Yeah, we met in the 98, maybe. Where'd you meet him? A club? No, it was sillier than that. Sarah Geller hosted SNL. Sarah Michelle Geller? Yeah, and I got to do a bit on the show, and then uh, Mac was at the after party, and I ran into him there. And how, how did you uh, connect? What was it that connected? Uh, well, he had come to see Sarah because they went to school together, and we've known her a similar length of time. Right. So we had that in common. I was like, hey, I'm going to go to the bar. You want to grab some? So we walked to the bar together. And I said, uh, I said, it's great to meet you. I got to tell you, I always loved that moment when the photographers were following you to school 
And it felt to me like you just wanted to give them something else to talk about. And so you dyed your hair purple and he just looked at me and he was like, they're fun to fuck with. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And that was, that was it. We just sort of like hung out that night a little bit. And then the guys that run world of wonder, which is the production company that makes drag race, they had produced a documentary about uh, the New York club life in the nineties and uh, Peter Gation and Michael Alleg and James St. James. And um, James had written this book called Disco Bloodbath. And my sister used to go to those clubs, like take the train from Philadelphia to be cool in New York. And like Michael, she, I remember her coming home and telling me that the guy that ran the club, Michael, like adopted them for the night. And it was nuts. So I always knew about all this shit. It was never cool enough to go to any of it. And then uh, these guys were like, we want to make a movie about it. We want you to play James St. James. I couldn't even believe that that was real. I was like, yeah, of course, of course, of course me, obviously. <laughs> yes, of course. And then I'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll do, I will fucking kill this role. I'll kill it. And they said, we're thinking about Macaulay Colgan from Michael Alley. And I was like, that's so funny. We just ran into each other. I love him. Is he attached? And he wasn't attached. So I reached out to him like, yo, man, you want to talk about this movie? And if this is a cool thing. And we met in LA, he was staying in some hotel and it was just one of those things where we had something very specific to talk about, but we spent the entire time just becoming friends. And then for the next two years, developing that movie with those guys until we shot it in uh, 2002, I guess. And, you know, then going through that experience with him. Is he a dark guy? I mean, no, he's the he mo- just kind of a nice no, I t- I say, I, t- I tell everybody he's the most well-adjusted person I know. He, you know, was trained from a very young age to be a surgical tool. And as a result, mm-hmm. he's a fucking weapon. You know, he knows how to sing and dance and he's a talented performer. And Is he shy? I don't know that he's shy. He can be really outgoing. It just depends on the crowd. He he just doesn't feel any obligation to impress anyone. Quell the mystery that surrounds him. Ah. And it's funny to think about because people in the absence of any information they have such wild fantasies of course and it's why i asked you these questions what's it like yeah it's great i love that boy he's like one of my favorite people (laughs) so i'm gonna go back i know we're skipping but you did this play you had one line you felt like this is what i want to do yeah jump to then what (laughs) well well, honestly like what's what's really the next step because you fell in love with it and you had to do more and more right it's true that uh, later that year, I just told my parents, I just, I need to be doing this. This is what I do. They were supportive. Ish. I, uh, my godfather's brother did radio in Philadelphia and knew about this uh, uh, on-camera training school in Philadelphia. That's what they call it, on-camera training school called Weiss Baron, which is still there. And um, I went there. We didn't have the money to take the classes. My mom painted a mural in their lobby in exchange for my sister and I taking classes. Really? Yeah. And then at the end of the like 10 class cycle, where they basically taught you how to do commercials. So I had to look directly into the camera. I, did, I took that class. Took that class. Not yeah. there. Yeah. But I remember that, that actually that class helped yeah. me get a job later on. Just like that. It really just understand having practical experience in front of a camera, which, you know, kids now have without even thinking about it they're basically they're basically raised by this view (laughs) yeah the iphone i saw this amazing there's an amazing banksy that's like the kid with the parents and then when the kid draws a uh self-portrait the family the parents have cell phone heads (laughs) that's great 
so I went and took that class. And the guy that ran it, his wife was a talent manager, E.D. Robb. And uh, I later found out that anybody that came through Philadelphia was repped by E.D. Because she was the shit. She just, like, got you out, hustled like nobody's business. And in New York, it's a different business. The, the actors are all freelance. The agencies are all freelance. And they have specific commercials that they're right. It's like Mad Men, where they would be doing a Coke ad and then they'd have a casting in their lobby. It was exactly like that, except I was the the actor that came in to audition for the whatever it was. Right. So um, the guy that runs the place is like, you know, my my wife is a talent manager and she holds open auditions once a month. You can go audition. So I went to this 500 person. And how old are you? Seven. Seven. You're seven at this. This is just okay. seven. Yeah. So 500 person cattle call to see this manager. First, you have to like keep it up the entire time that it takes until you're on stage and everybody watches everybody. So there's like, this is it, dude. You here or not? Nerves of steel. I didn't give a fuck. I was so excited. I come as a real manager. There's something that a child has when they start. If they have that sort of confidence, they don't think about all the stupid things that when you're an adult, you start to think about. Of course. Somehow your mind changes. Like, oh, this means if you could just have that mentality, you'd be the best. You just get hurt. And then you remember the trauma. And then your scar tissue shows sometimes. But that can really help. I wouldn't be able to have given the performance that I give in this movie if I had not been through the life that I've been through. And that's, that's, some, that's something you realize. Like you're, Tom, Tom Hanks said something on Actor Studio that I loved where he talked about when he was younger. He didn't even realize it, but he had a series of tricks and physical representations of emotion that could be very convincing before he learned how to just be in a moment. Right. I was like, oh, that really fucking hit me. I just do this. I look like I'm crying. If of I course. do this, yeah. I look like I'm happy. Yeah. But there's something that there's something even, even deeper than that. Cause when you are really crying, you do not want to show that you're crying. And so like trying yes. to restrain yourself from crying and not being able to stop yourself can often be more convincing than that face. That's what Clint Eastwood said to me. Is that true? He did. He, it was uh, a scene this movie, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and he says, and I just was so scared. It was like my first movie, and I remember he was like, you know, this upsets you, but you know you're going to cry, but you don't want to cry. It's like, you know, we don't really want to cry in front of people. Yeah. And I just kind of go, what? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. It's tough because we all grew up watching Emilio Estevez talk about getting kicked out of school for sure. taping all those kids Larry asses together butt cheeks together and right and club. that scene that like crying scene it like oh that's what real acting is i had that same manager tell me that everybody comes in with that fucking emilio estevez monologue and they're so i think tired. i learned it at some point they're so tired of hearing people just show how, how God, i'm great instead of just like showing like a character I don't know. I got a lot of lessons young, man. You, you learned a lot of stuff. By the, a lot of uh, good things. By the time I was uh, 18, I had seen other people's audition tapes. It's, it's just invaluable. Like when you watch other people audition, it was like high-level people. I knew a director and he let us watch some of the tapes for a movie. And you saw all of these people, people who were like in movies auditioning right away. Within seconds, you can tell who's right or wrong. Within seconds. And it was a fascinating lesson to learn because it had nothing to do with, oh, I love this person. They're such a good actor. That's just not right for this part. Or just boring. Or just somewhere in the middle. Didn't know their lines. Uh, came in with a paper. Uh, hadn't, well, really, well, 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 hadn't really thought about stop anything. Stop there right for a second. Yeah. yeah. The bringing in paper. Well, here's the difference, Michael. Is it's like, if you're like, hey, good to see you. 
Yeah, I know. I'm supposed to be here earlier, but whatever. Well, I just wasn't going to fucking do that. Wait, you're not looking at your paper. Of course not. Of course not. But you Versus, have it, so you don't think it's a... Just in case. Just in case. You he, can have it, and you can turn your pages, but you can tell if you're in the thing or not. And everybody that was looking down, even if they like did it in the deficit space to like reference it, it takes you out of the scene 100%. And so you know, I'm not even 18, and I get to see that lesson. And it immediately changed the way that I auditioned, not just in the way that I prepared, but in the way that I let it go. Do you always have things memorized? You never go on with paper like, and actually look at it here and there? Because look... I went on an audition. I don't know if I got it, but I, I liked it. It was a lot of stuff, not a lot of time, nerves, wanted to be great. Sure. There's a little monologue in front, had that pretty much down. Yeah. And then the other pages, I would glance down and go, and I would look at it here and there, and I still felt like I walked out going, I did exactly what I wanted to do. Did you see who got it? I don't know yet. I don't know. But I, I wasn't upset with myself for using paper. And my thought, thought is always, if you go in there with paper, like, oh, he hasn't actually learned the whole thing. He didn't, he's busy. He didn't have. But if you go in there like you've learned it all and you're doing your audition and go, oh, it's pretty good. They think that you're done because you're not on book at all. I think they you're, think you're, that's as good as you're going to be. I no? think you're like trying to Sun Tzu the whole thing. And it, people don't <laughs> put that much consideration into it. Like they just look at you when you come in the room. As prepared. They're not, they're not overthinking. And if a director is going to give you any kind of direction, they'll give it to you whether you've got it off book or not. Th- that's the hardest lesson about the whole thing is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, as an actor, I always want to be more prepared. I always want to dress the part. I always want to, um, uh, y- you know, like, have a real point of view. And sometimes the biggest lesson to learn is that you can do all of that and still just not be right for the part. And it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You can be somebody, yeah. absolutely awesome. I had so many awesome people. Awesome. I've watched so many awesome auditions. And, and you're just like, ah, oh, this just doesn't, just doesn't look right. It's not what I'm seeing in my head. Or isn't going to work. It just isn't going to work yeah, against, I'm, against I'm the total you, you're, scope you're of the things. Right. Isn't that yeah. the, the weird? But if you can take out the personal nature of that, if you can remove that from yeah. the exchange, you'll have a lot healthier of an experience. And I, as, and an, I, as a performer. Yes. Otherwise, you're just deeply, you're like, I could have, what, what did I do wrong? I could have done I, it. I never think like that. Could have done anymore. it differently. I, I, in fact, I throw my sides away right when I walk out. And I'm, and I'm done with it. People are like, ha, then, I, you, I, then you get the call back. You're like, ah, oh, fuck. Shit, I, I don't know anymore. Can you send me the sides? I didn't think I'd be called back for this. I, just, I, I, was, uh, I had to leave, guys. I was done with this. Yeah. yeah. It's a crazy business because, look, if you go in for an interview and you have a great resume and they're like, they're a little boring. and They don't judge you on really your personality as much. As an actor, you walk in there and they know if you're the guy pretty much when you walk in or they go, okay, step one, I like that. Let's see how he reads. Step two, yes, he was good. Step three, let's see if they match with the other actors. And step four, uh, are they a pain in the ass to work with? Let's do some call, make some calls. For sure. Yeah. There's so many variables. There is. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. So it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Yeah. And it helps me not be so stressed out. I, I, I find to give a convincing performance, I have to like fall in love with the thing a little bit. I have to really believe who this person is and then be able to represent them in a way that's honest. Yeah. And so it's all, it always sucks <laughs> when you like have to throw the thing away. Yeah. But the, the best thing you can do is just remember that it's got nothing to do with you. I not you personally. I stopped telling my, uh, grandparents a long time ago or anybody about any audition I would ever have yeah. because up till about six months ago, my grandmother was saying, did you get the saving private Ryan yet? No, no that, that, no, that was, came out. That came out 20 years ago. Won an Oscar. Awesome. Huh? Yeah, wasn't in that. Stuff. What are you going to do? 
I, but you know, there's the other side of that too. I see a lot of actors who are struggling bitch about it on their social and uh, you know, it's so ugly. It's so just ugly. Can't, just get to let it go. No one's gonna care. What, what, what do you think is the outcome of that? That someone's gonna be like, Oh my gosh, I, I overlooked you. Thank God you put me on blast on Twitter. Just get over it. No one <laughs> yeah. wants to see it. No one. And by the way, I can't stand it anymore. Facebook. If you're not happy, that's not the platform. Tell your best friend you're not happy. For the most part, you don't need to send Facebook. Don't you think people have just gotten addicted to that? Like we we made it culturally acceptable to aggregate likes. And so all of a sudden you've got a true measurement of your value in the collective, which yeah. is – that's a difficult thing for kids to grow up with. It's bad enough going to school and feeling like you have no friends. But being able to look at your mobile device and actually see you have no friends – or that no one liked what you had to say. Oh, what did I just watch? I just watched uh, Apatow's uh, comedy thing. And he said, can you imagine how insane that would be if uh, back in the 70s, because taking pictures was such a laborious process where you had to wait for, you, you have no idea how shitty your picture is, and then you have to take it to get developed. And then if you <laughs> mailed it to a friend of yours and they opened it up and it's just your food, <laughs> you're like, what did you think about it? Did you like it? I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to collect opinions. I've been sending <laughs> this picture of my food to all my friends, see what they think. What do you think about my meal? Are you into it? Do you like it? And I was like, I just got a keen grasp on. I feel bad. I feel bad sometimes. I see this guy has uh, however many followers or whatever, and they say something so like they 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 care so much about something, and you know, I look and I go, oh, eight days have passed, and they have no likes. Like nobody even commented on it. It's like why why do we continue to comment on? Or what about the people who have like 275,000 followers, but they're following 600,000 people? How does that work? I don't know. Do you know the answers to this? No, I think the whole thing's a little bit broken. And I'm nervous about kids that grow up in a world where it's already always existed. Because I think that's the the interesting thing is that you you grew up without a, a sense of an alternative. And so you just believe that this is the way it is. And that's... That's going to raise some really fucked up kids. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, so just jump ahead. You 500 people, you're auditioning in front of for a manager. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. I want to just get to some of the kind of how it all took off. Well, I got, she hired me and my mom said. One that, person, it was you? Yeah. Well, I don't know who else she hired. I didn't get to hear everybody else's private conversations, but I came up to the desk and she asked me a couple questions and I answered them in, in earnest. And then she said, all right, you're hired. And then she took my mom's information and asked my mom, is she serious? Are you guys willing to take the train to New York to go to auditions and stuff? My mom was like, I guess so. How long is the train? About an hour and a half. How often did you have to do it? Five times a week. And she took you? Yeah. Every time? Yeah. And what's the first thing you got? The very first audition I went on. Oh, what was that? It was an RCA industrial for a John Denver record release. What song? I have no idea. Something about a granddad and his kid. <laughs> Don't mock. John I'm not mocking. It was like the greatest dare. thing ever. But I was too young for the record. And he loves space, which you love. That's true. Is it? I don't know anything about him. John Denver. Yeah, he apparently wanted to pay. This is according to a Pixie song that he wanted to pay a lot of money uh, to fl to go to the moon or to go mm -hmm. go in space, and he was going to take a fortune. Yeah. And uh, they wouldn't. They Especially wouldn't do it. So he went to the Russians or something. Did he ever get on the? Did that. he go to the soy? No. Did he get on the rocket? No, but I want. It's crazy. That money is crazy. Even how, still, how much is it? Uh, the conservative estimates still put it over like fifty million dollars. Fifty million. Yeah, but it's the. I don't have it's, that. it's not even the. It's uh, the labor is what's weird, especially on the Soyuz. It's not the. Uh, 
it's not the fuel the way you'd think it would be. It's just the labor. Really? Yeah. Con- construct to build the rockets, the the things that get them off the ground. So you weren't very, your parents, they didn't have a lot of money. So you did this RCA commercial and how much money did you make? I don't remember, but it wasn't significant. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't until I had, you know, by the time I was 12, I had done like 60 commercials, both like on because camera and Because you were so damn over. charming and cute and I, genuine. I read at a really high level right. and I looked much, much younger than my age. Plus my hair was bright red, which was always a novelty. So you're making a fortune really by the time you're 12, you're making some money. It's look, let's just say it's worth it for mom to drive an hour and take a train hour and a half. The income supported the output. We weren't ever making like a massive profit. We were never like living large. What was the big thing? Um, weirdly enough, there weren't big things until I moved out to LA. There were a lot of things that were, you know, that, that you could make a, an acceptable living on, but I didn't actually start improving, um, until I moved out here. Well, who made that decision? Uh, that just seemed obvious. I made, uh, I, I did, um, when I was doing it, Stephen King's it in, uh, uh, Vancouver, I turned 15 and Jesus. I was certain that I had to move to LA cause I'd already come out to LA a couple of times and worked out here and you could just see it. Like we'd even come out for pilot season and lived at the Oakwood, did that whole run. Didn't years. everybody live at the Oakwood? Yeah. Yeah. That's a movie. And That's not, the, a movie. not the documentary the that Oakwoods. they made. Yeah. But something more nostalgic. I shouldn't even talk about it cause I've got a better, I've got an idea. I'll just write it. All right. Um, Can I be in it? Awesome. Of course, man. You heard that first. Of course. Right if I didn't have to fly everybody out to fucking Thailand to make this movie, literally everybody would have been in this movie. <laughs> you know what You're I'm saying? You're that guy. But because, you know, it's like Dax. Dax, like, puts me in things, and James just puts me in things. Yeah. Our friends, like, you know, I don't rely on my friends. Yeah. I like my friends because they're my friends. Well, because if you... And if they want to put me something in, that's great. Well, it's usually like, and you know this from doing stuff, who do you want to be around? Who do you want to share this with? Who yeah, do you want to have on set and at the premiere? Like, who do you want to have in the fucking trenches when you have to talk about why you even did this shit to the press and yeah. then live up against everybody's opinions about it? Like, who do you want beside you? So... That's the way I think about it. And I always think it was like the whole point of the Hollywood of coming out here and having a good time and being with people you love and having a great time on set. Yeah. Like, I just want to enjoy myself. Me too. And it's really possible. Isn't it possible? It really is. It's so easy. It can be. You're yeah. making a movie. This but, is fun. But there is, you have to Not adhere. Not everyone's like that. Well, you have to adhere to a no assholes policy, which is something that we try to implement at our studio, which is, look, man, everybody's here because they want to be here. And so let's we as the owners try and make it a place that people want to work or be. But when people work there, it's like, you can't be a dick. You got to be a team player. You can't be an asshole. Can't. How many movies have you done? Uh, I mean, I'm just, it's, it's, like, it's, it's endless. It's over 40, but it's under 50. It's over 40, but under 50. I think it's like 43. I don't know. I mean, you've done huge movies, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, you're, you, you know, these movies, I'm going <laughs> to, cause you were in them. Yeah. But I mean, it's just incredible to go from enemy of the state and the Italian job that are highly regarded, you know, and and then can't hardly wait, which are favorites. They're just will stood the test of time. Can't hardly wait is probably one of my favorites. But the uh, one with um, the lawnmower guy, the uh, can't can't, oh, buy, can't, buy, me can't buy me love. That's yeah. why I can't hardly wait. Was I confuse it with can't buy me love? You know, it's crazy. With, that was an independent movie. An independent it's one movie. of my favorite movies of all time. I, I quote it. I know the dance. I know the and you were the brother. I've. Did you see I'm the movie? I'm pretty sure I've still got the original Boy Rents Girl script. That's what it was called, Boy Rents Girl. Boy Rents Girl. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've still got that script. 
Was that a fun experience? You were young on that too. It was great. I learned a lot of a lot of shit on that. What What did you learn on Can't Buy Me Love? I learned that I was really obnoxious and that uh, there were people who would not stand for it. <laughs> what, what What happened? Uh, you know, some of the extras, I was just super obnoxious being like, nerd, I'm a fucking gear, too much energy. You know, and there was... Uh, so people had, didn't like you. They hated you. I had this whole bit where... And I've seen kids do it. You know, you come up to somebody and you're like, I need a friend. Would you be my friend? I need a friend. Would you be my friend? And then they're like, I'll be your friend. And then you hug them and be like, we're friends. And you're like, something's wrong with that child. I did it to this one guy who now I realize was probably like 16. And he was like, I'm not going to be your friend. And he drank his fake soda. And I was like, what? Why won't you be my friend? He goes, you're fucking obnoxious. <laughs> and I was like... 14 years old, devastated because wow. I had turned the audience and I was like, oh no, how do I get them back on my side? Back to the yeah. old child. But there was also, uh, I got, to, I came to set, uh, like the night before to do a costume fitting and I got to meet Patrick. How was Patrick Dempsey? He was great. It was a, it was a complicated thing. Uh, cause he is a method actor and he took the time to explain to me how methodology works in that in that circumstance. He was a method actor through Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. Was it true that he's highly dyslexic? So he, he is that true? I don't know. Did you not read that? But I haven't I read, read that. that. I, I think he's great in that movie. I, I love oh, him yeah. as an actor. Like he's actually an actor I've always admired, but we had such a funny experience because I didn't know anything about method acting. And I certainly didn't understand that someone would hold a character in between cut and action. And so that took me a minute, but I also had to learn how to work with another actor's process and not let it impede my process. Wow. How to assist the lead with their process. Yeah. And I feel like most of the roles I've played are supporting actor, which is my favorite space. So I've gotten to know a ton of leading men at several different ages. And I found a lot of consistencies, a lot of similarities in like behavior and needs. Um, What are some of those needs or behaviors? Well, a, a lot of times the hero is not in their real life that comfortable feeling like a hero. And so the way that all of us struggle with feeling like a fraud, the hero in the movie, especially your lead man or your lead woman, like whoever's supposed to be the hero, a lot of times they're really struggling with their own basic, I don't know if anybody believes this. And so just being able to fucking give them anything they need in the moment to help complete that illusion, that's what I'm there for. It's it's weird because sometimes you see how much stress is put on someone when they're doing a part. I've seen that where they put so much pressure on themselves. Where a lot of times I'm like, oh my God, just do it. It's so easy. Just have fun and just you know. I, re- I read once where DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, was on um, uh, the one where he was nominated for an Oscar. He was nominated Gilbert for a couple, Grape. Gilbert Grape, mm-hmm. and he would play that ki- character as mentally which, challenged. Which I saw him do at parties for like six years before <laughs> he got that part. I know you, Mama. You're I hiding. Believe, I couldn't even believe it because he he's a brilliantly gifted Brilliant. actor, and I've actually like. I, I've, I'm so uh, in admiration of his career. It's just funny when you see the thi- like Jim Carrey did the in Kaufman thing for years, just as an impersonation before he gets to play him. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. But like DiCaprio would jump into it on action. Yeah, like like and then be done. And I was like, yeah, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some moments where I'm like, if I'm playing something, I go, I I actually need to be alone to figure this out because yeah. if I don't fucking focus and i'm add spastic michael if i don't focus i'm gonna 
shit the bed on camera. I, I'm going to have to do a lot of takes, and it's going to be – I don't want to do that. I want to nail it. There's something about me who wants to nail it on the first take. As a director, I will say I'll always like a second take. Even, yeah. Like in this movie, we, we everybody – even even myself, I have a scene where I'm supposed to be emotional, and it was hard. I didn't like it. And there's a lot of people, and it's you start getting in your own head, <laughs> yep. and just we're the light and all this fucking shit. And then we we did it, and I felt like, oh, okay, I got it good. And my producer looked at me and goes, "We should do one more. We should do one more." And did that kind of make you like your gut just sank, like oh, fuck. a little bit? I didn't want to do it again. I really didn't. But I had to like. He I wanted, had to, right. Well, and also he was right. Our second take was better. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. So I'm saying don't be so concerned about nailing it. Well, it's not about that. It's like, hey, it's not like I a go, stunt. Here's the thing. If I go in and I say and you say Seth says action and I do it and I'm in the ballpark, I'm focused and I'm right there, then it's 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 easier. If I'm focused and I'm right in the moment, yeah. it's easy for you to say take a do a little of this do a little of that. Just adjustment. I don't want to be so far away, so I like to try and just focus. Try to For sure. I mean, it's there's sometimes where I could just jump into it. I don't even. I, I know the, the shit so well. I think it depends. It just depends. The crew, the depends. crew's usually really uh, forgiving and supportive. Your crew, if, sure. if you're not an asshole, then the crew really wants you to succeed. Always. And so if you say, "Hey, Jimmy, I just need a second. I just need a second. Give me, will you give me like a ten count to action, please? Just to like get, they'll do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. When we when we were doing without a paddle, me and Dags, we would do exactly that. We were ridiculous ridiculous bro the bro just want to kill you guys no i think bro wanted to be a part of it bro i think bro actually had a hard time on that movie being behind the camera because he could see we were having so much fun so much fun yeah yeah and he's that kind of guy who wants to like jump in and be funny he's very smart and funny so he like was like oh i should be there in the mix of that um and uh and and matt i found had to he had such a different kind of pressure in that movie because he got to be the guy that kissed the girl you know what i mean and so sometimes me and dax would get like they get annoyed yeah, and Matt would be like, hey, guys, excuse, can you just like just lower down just for five seconds? I've, I've heard that before from people about me sometimes. Every once about in a while. you? Well, every once in a while, if I'm joking around with the crew and they're like, hey, hey, can I just, can I just, just, just a little? Yeah. I mean, we've all had that. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, totally. And so I think it's, it's about that. It's like getting what you need whilst not being disrespectful. And you guys needed to needs. be playful and fun. And that's why when they said roll, you were there. But he was just like, can you just fuck off? He's like, guys, I'm supposed to be crying here. Just... And if I'm and if I'm doing an improv run about shitting in stockings, it's not. I just need a second, guys. I just need a second. Shitting in stockings. <laughs> what the fuck is that? It's so hard to explain. It was the, uh, I think it was, it was Sean Paul. No sexy lady come ball with us. They gonna ball with us. Oh my god! You know gosh. what I'm saying? That, yeah. That yeah, song was was hot that summer. It's <laughs> hot. The song was hot. Dax and I went on this whole run about <laughs> if that song was different. If it's not about <laughs> hot chicks at a club. If in, if instead it's like one girl struggle with incontinence and. <laughs> I don't even think I can do it. Sex. Uh, it was like the sexy lady going shit down her drawers. She's going to do up her stockings, going to poop in her skirt. It was like that. <laughs> That's what Dax and I were doing. I, I, yeah. Those are... And at one point, Matt was like, hey, hey, guys, 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 come on. Just to give me give me a second. <laughs> and I remember I remember Dax and I in the moment were like, we were both like, it was so, it was so serious. Time and place. Time and place. Uh, where did you meet Claire? Uh, we originally met at the grand reopening of Golden Apple Comics. Uh, she and I, this is a very funny story. It just shows why we like each other. She and I had both moved from different places, independently sought out a home-based comic shop, 
And it was Golden Apple and made friends with the family that ran the place for years. And so when uh, Golden Apple was moving down Melrose, they asked everybody that they knew all their like regulars to come do signings, come hang out for events, that kind of stuff. And also to help them move because we're going to hire movers. So they got all of the regulars to move their stuff and put on events. And so uh, Claire, who also is a photographer as a hobby, uh, she took pictures of the event. So I remember meeting her, my friend Hugh Sturbikov and I, who made a comic together, went there and signed the comic. And uh, I remember her introducing herself and saying, hey, I'm Claire, I'm going to take pictures of you. Don't worry, I'm not like up in your face or whatever. And then she wasn't. She was cool. We barely like Were you talked to her immediately. No, I wasn't even thinking about it. Well, I was also in a relationship, so I wasn't like trying to. Was she? She was. She told she you. She also, later. you got to remember, like, if you ever saw Claire at Khan, she was not trying to be pretty baseball hat, uh, hooded sweatshirt with the hood up. You know what I mean? Zero makeup. Right. Yeah. And so that behind a camera, it's like, I'm not even trying to. <laughs> You know? Are you saying you don't love a girl with no makeup? No, it wasn't even that. It's know, just there could not have been less of an appropriate context to be attracted to. Right. Somebody. You had a girlfriend. She a million was, things. A million, million things are going on. Yeah, there's also like a crowd of people who are signing shit. So uh, then uh, <laughs> months later, it's I think it's 2007, and Comic-Con is starting to suck. Like there is a massive influx of Hollywood, and there's parties that mm-hmm. with lines and gifting suites. And I was like, this is turning into a fucking shit show. Mm-hmm. And uh, – all of the bars were shitty and I was mad. I was having like such a shitty night and I got a text from my buddy. He's like hotel party, this place, this and this. And so I, I come in there and there's like 20 people in this room and, uh, this is, this is the better place. And so Claire is there and she's like, Oh, we met at golden apple. And I was like, Oh yeah, we did. Didn't we? You were wearing no makeup and hoodie. Didn't even, didn't even, it was just like, oh yeah, you're not a crazy person. Right, it was literally right, right. as much thought as I put into it. And then we, we hung out that night with a bunch of people. And then for, you know how Comic-Con is like, you, you wind up like finding your friends and hanging out and talking nerdy with your friends. And so she and I had all the same friends. So for the rest of that con, I just saw her everywhere, everywhere. And I was like, oh, it's you. And so then we just started hanging out. And then it was months after that, she was Facebook friends with Senreich and he, uh, knew that I was like months out of a breakup and didn't want to date anybody, but like kind of just wanted to hang out with somebody that was cool. And he was like, oh, Claire's cool. You should call her. And that's it. Pretty much. I mean, we didn't, we, we were friends for about a year before we started dating. Really? Cause I, yeah. Cause I just no didn't fooling around in that year. I mean, seven months in, seven you know, months in, seven so you, months really in. Got, you really got to know each other. That was the best part. Neither one of us were trying to date the other. And so we weren't, I think we were playful. Like we would hug each other really well. And we were definitely affectionate in that way, but it wasn't romantic. <laughs> it just didn't, it didn't become romantic. I'm Seven sorry. months in. It took a minute. You know what I mean? That's good. I well, sometimes we think were, maybe that's the way to go. Maybe just like hang out with someone and just see. Well, if and you I can... also didn't think it was really possible. I didn't think that was going to be possible to like have a relationship with my good friend. And that was, I, I thought for sure I was going to like ruin our friendship by trying to have a relationship. So even if we fooled around that, that wasn't it just wasn't gonna you know what i mean and i almost really blew it because she was like i am not gonna fool around with you and not be in a relationship with you um and actually it's kind of painful to just try and be friends so wow maybe we just stop being friends she was going to tell me that 
on the same night that I was like, I don't think I can be without you. And maybe we should, maybe we should be together. This is before you really kissed. No, 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 no. We had, we had had like months of a run up until that. Like we, we fooled around and then kind of were faced with the idea of like, is this going to be a relationship or not? And, and the friendship is just as strong as it was. Yeah. I really like her. Yeah. (laughs) I would hope so. No, I mean, we're, we're actually, we're, we're very good friends. We, we don't keep secrets from each other and we confide in each other. And then we, do our best to support each other. How hard is it being married? Um, it's definitely a challenge. I'd say marrying somebody that I like being around who I share so many interests with made it a lot easier. Because there'll be these great nights where we're supposed to go to some party and she'll say something like, would it be okay if instead of putting on a dress and shoes and makeup, we just postmates the counter and watch this last two episodes of Daredevil? And I'm like, yes, it's okay. And I don't know what deal I've made with the devil to, <laughs> to, have, to have you in my life, but I'm grateful. What do you like that she doesn't like or vice versa? Um, she definitely plays uh, video games in a way that I don't play video games. Uh, like extreme? No, she just plays. She's played everything her whole life. Who's better? She'll kill me in everything. Everything. Star Wars, Battlefront? I think I could beat her in Tetris. Tetris? Yeah. Neither one of us play like a lot of FPS stuff, so Battlefront hasn't been... Uh, a game for me do you have any silver spoons sort of video games in your house real original games so uh around 2003 i bought this main cabinet that has a big hard drive in it and simulates basically everything that came out up to that point so it's got all of the systems from like ColecoVision to do you know ColecoVision is one of my favorites smurf you should come over i've got the, smurf I've, yeah i've got the whole fucking catalog it's a hard drive do you <laughs> do you have uh rocky versus rocky yeah, the only question is whether it's been formatted. So if you want to come over and locate the game and then we could format it, it's very easy. What about Dragon's Lair? Yeah. Do you play it? I have. Have you beaten it? No. No. I sound like the guy Chris Farley on SNL. When you when you when you play Dragon's <laughs> Lair, did you, did you like it when you turn into a skeleton? <laughs> Was Robot Chicken sort of like a dream come true for you? Yeah, that's well, it's even weirder because other people watch it. <laughs> Three years. How many years has it been going on? Uh, we've been making the show, excuse me, 12 years, but, uh, we've just, our ninth season has just started airing in the beginning with all the claymation and all the thing. How, how, how long would an episode take before you got it really worked out? Well, we made 20 episodes at a run and, uh, we shot the animation for each episode in about five days. That fast. Yeah. Are those days long? Those are the worst uh, days for anybody that worked on the show. Like the whole first season was one of the difficult, one of the most difficult and challenging. Did you things. think there's no way they're picking this up? I couldn't even believe they had contracted us for 20 episodes. We weren't trying to make a show that wasn't supposed to be a thing. This was a precursor to YouTube. This was before people were watching short form content on the internet. We, uh, it was still in an age where everyone believed that you're never going to pay to watch a movie on your phone. There's, this wasn't a thing. Right. <laughs> It's a good lesson in following accidents, um, <laughs> making lemonade out of lemons. I mean, if you had to choose one thing, because you're now you're acting and you're directing and you're writing and you're producing and you're doing everything. If you had to stick to one. Acting. No, I'm always an actor. Always an actor. First. Yeah. And I find like the further away I get from uh, acting, the less happy I am in, in almost every regard. But I, but I do think there's a balance and I'm, I feel like this year... Excuse me. Let it the, go out. Let it out. This year was like the first time we were able to pool all of these things together to do something. So 
you know, I've been acting my whole life and uh, I've learned a lot about making films through making so many movies and also watching so many people make movies and then also really paying close attention to the entire industry just as best I can. Like what went wrong there? Why did that happen? How did people receive this? How did they think this was going to work? What's happening right now that's going to shift the way we have to present this or all of those things? Um, any knowledge that I've gotten, like how the mechanics of each job works, what kind of people are good in that kind of job, like all that knowledge I think has made me a better director. I went out to Thailand so prepared to make this movie because I, I, I surrounded myself with excellent people and then I relied on them to give me information and then I worked harder than I've ever worked, but in the way that I've seen be most successful, you know? This has been a real treat for me. It really has been. I mean, I really feel like I I say it every time. I get to know we see each other years and years and we talk and you and I haven't really gotten to perform together. And that's, I would, we haven't really gotten to do anything and it's a shame, but you know, life is, we got a lot of life left. I hope. I hope so too. That that is my favorite thing about this is that I keep running anybody that doesn't quit. You see him again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Just don't quit. That's, the best advice I can ever give anybody. What if you get into a rut and you're just like, eh, I don't know what I really love anymore. You ever get into those? Always. And what do you do? Shake it the fuck up as hard as you can. Do you I'll, ever take a sabbatical? You know, if you need to do something to get re-inspired, that's fine. But you can't take time away because everything keeps moving. People don't really notice that you're gone. They'll notice when you come back. Really? Yeah. They don't notice you when you're gone. Not really. It's sad. Is it? Would you notice if I was gone? If you're like, I haven't seen Rosenbaum in a couple of years. I would, for sure. You would? Yeah, but I'm not the industry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um, what's your Instagram? It's really easy. It's Seth Green. Is there a Seth Green underscore? Uh, there might be. I don't think. Not mine. I was really lucky. I was really adopted. You just got Seth social. Green. Yeah. I had to be pretentious, the Michael Rosenbaum, because there was already a couple of rabbis. I had the nicest thing happened where a guy who's named Seth Green reserved the Seth Green Twitter, the second Twitter existed, and then he reached out to me a couple years into it and told me that he would give it to me, that he wasn't going to charge me anything for it. He just wanted to make sure that I, I was the one that actually got it. Still keep in touch with him? I did for a minute. It was really, I thought it was really nice. It is. It's very generous. charge you $10,000. Super classy. Super Super classy. classy. There are good people out there. Uh, So I called him on the phone as we made the exchange and then we, we've stayed in touch a little bit. That's nice. And the Twitter, is it just Seth Green? Yeah. At at Seth Green? Yeah. You really lucked out. I really did. And what's the name of the movie? When does it come out? Well, we don't have a release yet. We're submitting it to festivals. I'm, I actually just came from working on the collar. I've still got like another. And what is it again? The name? Changeland. Changeland. Yeah. You directed it. I did. And you wrote it. I did. And you started it. Yeah. With your wife. Yeah. And friends. Yeah. <laughs> and you shot in Thailand. We did. And how long were you there? Uh, I was there for three months. We shot for about four weeks. Four w- what's next? You're coloring. You were. You came yeah, from the color. color. Yeah. What we're does submitting. that mean? Tell the audience. You're coloring. You're making it look better. Well, you know, you shoot uh, on digital or film and the light changes the sun or your conditions and so you go through a color pass where you can make it more consistent technologically put everything in the same color space and you can make minor adjustments there too like brighten stuff up or darken stuff or like adjust like if you notice in a michael bay movie it's all highly saturated so he puts the color and probably uh orients to something other than white balance i'm colorblind so i had to are you really, really i had to when i directed my movie back in the day i had to rely on my dp and the colorist no shit I just was like oh, that looks fine They're like dude that's green i'm like wow seth wow 
That's hard. Has that has that been difficult? Uh, you know, as a kid, I, I thought I was just really stupid, mm. and no one explained to me that I was colorblind until and that that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> I was in Mr. Irwin's class biology, and he said, per, "Turn to page twenty-seven. Uh, if you don't see a sailboat in the circle and a number nine, you're colorblind. See me after class." And I looked at Dusky Dusky right out to my left, and I said, "Dusky, I don't see anything." Michael Rosenbaum's colorblind, and Whoa. I just felt like the the world had ended, and, and nobody else in the class. They just thought I, I, you know, they looked at me like, "What? You're blind? Color yeah. blind? What are, what's wrong with you?" I didn't know that there was really nothing wrong with me. It was just genetic. It was just like you know. Well, and it's also so confusing because it's interpretation, and so when you, when somebody else sees something or hears something or smells something, and somebody else does not, your immediate instinct is they're different. There's something wrong with them. Well, but also because it calls into question where you fit into the whole thing. So nobody yeah. says this accusation without wanting to confirm that they themselves are safe in the collective. Dude, I love you. Thanks for being here. I love you back. All See right. you soon. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.